well, I need to prepare you because many of you are going to be with family over the next uh, few weeks, and I just need to prepare you. I feel like I not only need to prepare you, I need to help your family members that aren't in the room right now that you're going to be with. And be, the reason, the, the way that I want to do that this morning is I, I simply want to help those of you learn, to learn this morning how to tell a good story. Let me just ask you this question. How many of you like a good story? Raise your hands if you appreciate a good story. How many of you like to tell a good story? Raise your hands if you like to tell a good story. Well, I have uh, news for you. It's not personal. I mean it across the board, but there are some of you in this room that you like to tell a good story and you think you're a good storyteller, but other people around you may not appreciate your stories as much as you do. And I want to help you this morning. I want to help you learn how to tell a good story. If you're taking notes, I'd appreciate it if you'd write down some of these tips. And I think uh, not only would I appreciate it, I think your family members would appreciate it even more. Here's one of the steps to telling a good story. Step number one. This is really basic, but we got to start right here. Don't be boring when you tell the story. Okay, that's step one. Do not tell a boring story. One of the questions you've got to ask before you tell a story is, is this story even worth telling? Is it even a good story? Or is this story boring? And are, is my family members, and, and this is kind of a clue, and some of you have never clued in on this, but I want to help you be self-aware going into the holidays. If your family suddenly finds a reason to leave the room most of the time, you'd start to tell stories. Your stories aren't good. They're boring. So step number two, let me give you the second step. Don't start the story the wrong way. Sometimes you may have a good story, but your story was started the wrong way. How many of you have ever been stuck talking to someone and they get about 60 seconds into the story and you're looking for the nearest exit? Because they started it the wrong way. Let me give you a third uh, tip. The third tip is, and this is really important. This is really, really important. And I know this is for some of you because I've heard some of your stories. Don't go too long in your storytelling. You need to ask yourself what details are pertinent to the story and what details are not pertinent to the story. There are some of us in the room that have ADD and ADHD. We have a short attention span. You have to think of some of us as children, if you will. And so you don't want to go too long in your story. And that goes to the last point. Don't include details that have nothing to do with the story. We don't need to hear the, so the story, side story to the story, and then the other side story, and then back to the main story. We don't want to hear all that, friends. We just want to hear the story. You know, it's interesting as you think about stories and you think about storytelling that the, the guy that, we're, that we just read from, Matthew, uh, actually what he did is he kind of broke all of those rules that I just gave you about storytelling. And, and let me just back up for a second and help some of you understand in the room that the Bible, first of all, is not one book. The Bible is actually a collection of books that are all put together. It's actually 66 different books that are all compiled together. And there are four books that actually talk about the life 
and the teachings of Jesus. Those books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're all telling the same story, but they tell different versions of the same story, or they kind of hone in on different details of the same story. And so, for example, you look at the way that Mark starts his story about Jesus, and he kind of dives right into the action. He, he skips through all the Christmas stuff. He says, that's all unnecessary. I'm going to go right into Jesus baptizing John the Baptist. And then you look at John, and John's always more kind of the, the philosophical, theoretical writer, if you will, and he starts by going all the way into the eternal part of the story, and he talks about how the infant really was from the Lord, and he starts with this kind of heavenly picture, if you will. Matthew decides to start his story with the genealogy that we just read. Matthew decides, I'm going to start my story by all of these names, and I'm just going to encourage you, those of you that are newer Christians, that Matthew's book, his version of Jesus' story, actually gets a lot better. And so you may read it and go, I can't even, uh, I'm done. Like, I got through verse 16 of Matthew 1, and I'm going to shut my Bible. I don't understand. This seems dull. What are all these names about? I don't know who half these people are. I definitely don't know how to pronounce their names. I think even Pastor Wayne screwed up some of their names when we were reading. And so I just need to help you understand that there's actually a purpose and a reason why Matthew wrote Jesus' story this way. The first thing that you have to understand is Matthew understood his audience. He understood that he was speaking to Jewish people. And so he understood that the first thing that he needed to do was to help them understand that the Messiah, Jesus, the one who was born on Christmas Day, actually came from the lineage of David. Because if, the, if Jesus wouldn't have come from the lineage of David, the Jewish people would have gone, he's not the Messiah, he's not the real deal. Uh, and so he wants to help them understand Jesus really did come from the lineage of David. But then Matthew does something that many people throughout history have been skeptical of. And many people, especially during that time, would not have understood why he did it. Matthew includes in this story, this genealogy, he includes the names of people who are questionable, if you will. He includes the names of people who most people would have, would have, like if they were listening and they knew the history of Israel and they knew the history of those people, they would have kind of went, mm, they, they would have said, why is he talking about those people? Why are we beginning the Jesus story with the turnoff of talking about some of the people that you probably just should leave out of this? You probably shouldn't mention their names. They're people you, that history wants to forget. They're people that, that, are, that have done some scandalous things. There's even women included in that genealogy, which at that time in history would have been a no-no. They never wanted to include women in the history of any story, let alone the story of the Messiah. How many of you ladies are glad that Jesus reversed the trend and gave value to women in a society that did not value women? 
So you look at the story and you go, Matthew, why, why, are, you, why are you mentioning those people? Because at, at the time, you, you, you have to understand, it's, it's kind of like this. It's, it's kind of like, actually, the title of the sermon is There's One in Every Family because there's always that crazy uncle or that crazy aunt or that person that, like, when you were dating your husband or your wife now that you didn't tell them about that person until they were actually on, in the car already on the way to the Christmas you know, thing or on the way to the family reunion and then you told them about Uncle Joe or Uncle Henry or whatever, the uncle that you know, does weird things and hey, you know, I didn't want to tell you this before because you might have broke up with me you know, or not wanted to come today. There's always that, that person in every family but but Matthew lists all of these different people. And to understand this, you would have to understand how historians actually provided history during this time. You see, the way that history was provided during this time is that generals, uh, emperors, kings, uh, they would hire people hired historians, they would hire people that were actual professional writers, and they would have them write down history. But they always had them write down history with the bend, if you will, of making whoever they were writing for look really good. And so they would write about, if they were writing about a general, they would write about the battles that the general won. They would not usually mention what the, the battles that they were defeated. They would, they would write, if you will, about the king's good stuff things that he accomplished. They would not write about the fact that maybe the economy went bad. See, they were afraid of what our whole uh, uh, journey is afraid of right now and what our modern history is afraid of. They were afraid of fake news. Hello? And so they didn't want any fake news. So they actually decided to write a whole story of fake news. The story of everything was good, nothing was bad, and so historians were hired to make the people that they were right about look really good. And so going back to Matthew, why in the world would you write some of the names of these people and include them in this genealogy as you're writing the story of history? Why would you mention these scandalous, forgettable you know, people that should not be mentioned? Now some of you say, I, I understand what you're saying, Pastor but who are you talking about? Well, let's start, if you will, at just verse 1. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, how many of you that maybe have gone to church for a long time, you understand who Judah was, okay? You, you understand Judah, okay? So you think, well, that's got to be good, because you think, well, is, you know, you think of maybe like the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Jesus came from Judah, the lion of the tribe. So that's got to be good, right? He, he came from Judah, but here's what you have to understand about Judah. Judah actually has some things in his background, some things in his history that many of you may not even know about. If you look at another passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 38, that's one that people want to skip over uh, most often as well. The Bible says, first of all, that Judah did something he shouldn't have done. He married a Canaanite woman, which was not a good thing. He was actually went against the law and he married a Canaanite woman and then they had some sons, they had children, and their sons were not very good guys. In fact, the oldest son was so bad that the Lord actually decided to, that, to, that he was going to have to, to take him out. How many of you just pause right there when you think about that are glad we don't live in the Old Testament covenant where God just decided, I don't like you, you're dead, you know? And so it, that, that's really what happened. So God just took him out. 
But the problem was that he still had a wife. Well, according to Jewish law and Jewish custom, the second son should have then married the, <clears throat> the wife, Tamar, if you will, so she could have children. Well, the second son actually refuses to do so. He says, I don't want to do it. I don't care if it's Jewish law. I'm not marrying her. I don't know why it is. Maybe she was ugly. I don't know. But, but, but he decides, I'm not going to marry her. Well, she still wants to have children. And so Judah actually at that point is supposed to, uh, is supposed to, to now promise the third son to her so she can stay in the family and she can have kids. But then he procrastinates. He takes too long. And so she comes up with her own plan and Tamar decides I want to stay in this family and I've got to have children and so she the Bible talks about actually dresses up like a prostitute and she tricks Judah on the street one day into sleeping with her and he makes the mistake of not only sleeping with her he actually also provides his signet ring which in in today's day and world would be like providing a driver's license if you will just to verify that it's him and he finds out later that she tricked him. The only problem was she, she gets pregnant with two, two twins, and, and she has those two kids. Well, when Judah finds out that he's the dad and that he was tricked by his first son's wife, how many of you are like, this is a wild, dramatic, this is like a Hollywood soap opera story we got. And so Judah's, Judah's so upset because she has ruined the family name. I mean, never mind that the family name, I think, is already ruined at this point. And so he, he decides, I'm going to have her burned. And true story, Tamar, with the flames crackling behind her, shouts out to the whole world, Judah's the dad, and shows the signet ring, the driver's license to everybody, all the bystanders, and said, in case any of you were wondering, I've got his driver's license to prove he's the father. This is like daytime Emmy Award winning soap opera stuff. So why in the world would Matthew mention Judah? And why in the world would Matthew mention Tamar? Why would he go out of his way to mention people like that? And then if you look at verse 5 in the same chapter, you'll see a, a, a mention of a woman here named Rahab. And some of you may not know this, so maybe some of you do, but Rahab, don't look now, listen, she was a harlot. She's known as Rahab the, everybody whisper it together. Yeah. So Rahab, why would you mention, don't mention Rahab. That's part of the story that we don't want to mention that she's part of the lineage of, of the Messiah. And then, and then he goes on to mention Solomon, who was the, the son of Uriah's wife. Now, some of you go, who's Uriah's wife? Well, just in case you didn't know it, she has a name. Her name is Bathsheba. Ooh, that's the part of David's story that, that we would rather, David, I'm sure, would rather leave out of the equation because Bathsheba was the neighbor who, who David, you know, looked across, and the Bible says that he looked over and he saw his neighbor lady taking a bath, and, you know, I don't know exactly how that whole thing went down, but I can imagine David, you know, woke up and saw her, and it was like, boom, chicka, bang, you know, and, 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 and he sees her, and he sleeps with her. Don't get mad at me. It's in the Bible. He sleeps with her, and, and then he not only sleeps with her, 
He has her husband killed, who's one of his best friends. He sends him to the front lines of a battle, and he has her killed. And as David sleeps with her, there's a son that comes out of that whole story. His name is Solomon. So Uriah's wife is actually, shh, everybody say it together. Her name is Bathsheba. Matthew, why would you mention these names? Well, there's a few more. I don't have time to go through the whole list, but, the, but there's verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was father Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then there's down the list, there's Manasseh. Manasseh, if you don't know who he is, he's a wicked ruler who had sacrificed his own son in a satanic ceremony. So Manasseh is mentioned in the list. Yeah, that's probably not one you'd want to include in the lineage of Jesus, the, a wicked ruler who had sacrificed his own son in a satanic ceremony. Then there's Perez, who is the child of incest. Then there's another guy named Ahaz who worshiped idols. He's in that lineage that we just read. And, and then there's the, a couple in there named Hezron and, and Ram, and I don't know much about them besides one of them had a truck named after him, and, and, uh, and, and, and we don't know if they were saints or scoundrels, and then there's other people, uh, Abuid, a- Azar, Achim, Zadok, all of these names that are mentioned in here that if you're, you're looking at Matthew and you were part of, of the people that were surrounding Matthew as he's telling this story, you're going, oh, don't mention that one, oh, don't mention, you're making Jesus look better. You're making Jesus look like he wasn't from a pure royal lineage. Now, some of the names on there, many of the names on there are also of royal lineage, and and they were faithful men and women of God. But then there's these scandalous ones in there, and I have to think that maybe the reason Matthew mentioned those names and that he said, I'm going to include everybody in the lineage of Jesus, is I have to to, to consider that maybe Matthew was remembering his own story. Let's read about when he met Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, we look at Matthew, and he's one of the four gospels. He's he's one of the guys. I mean, he's one of the in crowd. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He was there to see Jesus at the cross. He was a part of the gang that got to see Jesus after the resurrection. Matthew is one of the in crowd. But you got to remember when Jesus met Matthew, he was a tax collector. And the tax collector simply meant... He was a tax collector. He collected taxes. And here's what you got to understand. Let me put it in context for you. Society did not like tax collectors. Let me help all of you in the room. Society still does not like tax collectors. Tax collectors at this time were some of the most hated people and most of them were known for being very crooked. Matthew, I think, 
Maybe one of the reasons that he walks through the lineage of Jesus, first of all, to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus did come from the the royal lineage of David, but I also think he's putting in some of these names, he's mentioned some of these scandalous characters, these people that history would rather forget, including women who wouldn't have even been allowed to be in most of the stories. I think he's trying to help all of us understand that Jesus connects and relates to and wants to understand that it's not just important who Jesus came for, it's also important to understand who Jesus came from. Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. Now think about this, y'all. Some of you are like, you feel nervous when I say that. He didn't just come for sinners. In his lineage, there are so many sinners in that story. This seemingly steamy story in the Bible, it helps us see that God uses failures. Watch this now. He uses broken people. He uses people that history would rather forget. He uses the throwaways. He uses the people that have messed up, that have made mistakes, that have failed. He uses those people. Matthew wants us to understand and connect to not the fact that these people were a lot like Jesus, but the fact that these people were a lot like you and I. As the band comes forward, I just want to help you understand that the birth of Jesus helps us understand that it is not that Jesus came through perfect people and he didn't come for perfect people. The Savior of the world came from people that were unlikely candidates to be included. People that history would rather forget. We are like them in so many ways, aren't we? Here's what I want to help you understand. Watch this. God not only heals the forgotten and the failures, he not only restores them and wipes away the tears from their eyes, that would be amazing if God stopped there, wouldn't it? How many of you have something in your past or in your present that you're not proud of? Raise your hands. Mine's first up. Look this way. Matthew is helping us understand that God can use you and that God can use me. He's helping us understand that God has a plan for our our lives. The bloodline of what Jesus came from helps us understand the bloodline of what Jesus came for. In fact, let me say it like this. If if there's a takeaway, here's what I want you to remember. Jesus makes the forgotten and the failures turn into the faithful and the fruitful. He makes the forgotten and the failures turn into the faithful and the fruitful. He looks at you with your painted history, with the things that you didn't include in your testimony when you told other people, the things maybe that you've never told anyone, the part of the story that you leave out. 
The pain of the abortion that took place. The decision you regret. The pain of the abuse maybe of your childhood. The pain of the sin that you committed before you came to Jesus. And I want to set all of us free in this room because there are so many of you that still wonder in the back of your mind. You, you try, you, you put on your clothes, you come to church, you go to small group, you, you maybe even volunteer on a volunteer team. But there's something in your mind you just keep coming back to over and over. It's, I don't know if God could really ever use me in a really powerful way because of what I've come from, because of my story, because of the unmentionable parts of my my story because of the parts of my story that I'd rather forget because there are people that I run into in New Orleans or in this New Orleans area that they know me as a different person than the people that y'all know me from. There are parts of your story, parts of your journey and what it does is the enemy plants these seeds in our mind and, and he says because you did that because you messed up that one night, because you you committed that sin, because you went to jail, because you did those things, God can never really use you. And here's my point this morning, and this is why I came, and this is what I want you to walk away with this morning. God can use you no matter what your past involves, no matter what your story is. God wants to use you, not just because of the story. He wants to use you in spite of the story and he wants to include you in his lineage watch this come on y'all let me get personal my mom's sitting here in the front row today. And I promise you she could remember a time when when Wayne was a lot different of a person. A rebellious, and I'll say it about myself, a rebellious punk. A rebellious punk that would rip up the Bible in front of my mom and dad. A rebellious punk that was consumed with doing drugs and alcohol. A rebellious punk that was living wild for almost five years of my life. I have good news for all of you. If God can use me... <laughs> God can use anyone. Had many teachers that didn't think I would even graduate from high school. Graduated not just from high school, graduated from college. And Christy, my wife, says if Wayne can graduate from college, anybody can graduate from college. Right now, trying to finish a master's degree, 
making straight A's in that master's degree. Sorry, Lord. Sorry, that's pride. Sorry. Be encouraged today that the birth of Jesus, the one that we celebrate this Christmas season all about, he not only came for broken people, came from broken people. No matter how you feel about your past or maybe even about your present, God wants to use you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. 